Well, welcome everybody to the Convene Studios, except we're not in the Convene Studios uh, because of this pandemic that we're all in the middle of. John Stone Street is my guest. He's in Colorado Springs, and I'm happily ensconced in the hills of Rancho Santa Margarita. So uh, welcome, John. Hey, thanks. It's great to uh, to see you, my friend. Always great to talk to you. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's how do you compare who's better off in what state during this crisis? Because you've got weather, you've got governors making random decisions. You know, it's yeah, I, I don't know. So I'll stay I'll stay put rather than come to California at this point. There you go. I still want to find that desert island where there's no cases of COVID-19 <laughs> and a really great internet connection. That's right. And no governor. If you can no get governor. all three of those things. Yeah, that's no like, governor. Yeah, that's like Oz. Yeah, good I luck figured out that. the other day you could do a $50 flight to Bermuda, but you had to quarantine in your hotel room for 14 days. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it, um, yeah. Wh wh which hotel? That's the I don't know. Which hotel? <laughs> So uh, let me read this bio that you sent me. No, I'm kidding. He didn't send it to me. John, for those of you who don't know, is the president of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. He's a sought-after speaker on faith and culture. He leads collaborations that mobilize Christians to understand Christian worldview, and that's what we're going to talk about. He's the daily voice of Breakpoint. Some of you may listen to that, and some of you may have listened to that when it was uh, led by Chuck Colson, a nationally syndicated commentary on culture reaches more than a million people a day. He's authored a number of books, degrees from Trinity, Evangelical, and he's in Colorado Springs. John, welcome to the broadcast. Hey, thanks. Yeah, and for those of you who may not have heard of Convene, we're a comprehensive leadership organization that helps leaders grow their business and themselves. And we're all the way from Rwanda to the United States, helping leaders with coaching, consulting, and peer-to-peer -peer networking. So John, uh, you have been a great champion of Christian faith and culture, one of maybe probably the leading voice of faith and culture. And sometimes Christian business leaders don't pay attention to culture. They're, they're head down, they're trying to increase revenue, they're trying to love on their people, they're trying to make a difference. But there's this, this, other part of life that maybe they don't pay attention to. Maybe they've compartmentalized it and said, you know, I'm not going to protest. I'm not uh, going to read that book. Uh, I'm not going to uh, write my congressman. I'm, I'm not going to donate to these crazy causes like modern day slavery. All of that's wrong. What would you say would be kind of the top topics that Christian leaders should be aware of? And let's just rapid fire, hit them and talk about why they matter and what we should do about it. Yeah, well, I mean, let me first say that most business leaders who don't kind of care about those controversial issues in culture understand how important culture is in their own business, right? It's, it's yeah. not just a matter of, I mean, it was a Drucker who said culture eats strategy for lunch every day of the week. There and we could say as Christians, culture eats theology for lunch every day of the week. Wow. Culture eats um, our moral behavior for lunch every day of the week. Just like you're not doing your business in a vacuum, we're not living our Christian life in a vacuum. We're living yeah. in a cultural moment, and that cultural moment assumes all kinds of things about um, what's true, what's good, who we are, what the good life is, what's worth living for, who's in control, all that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, in certain cultures, certain issues rise to the top. 
Uh, and I would say, uh, fundamentally, the, the, the serious question of our culture is, uh, is there such a thing as truth and how can we know it? Uh-huh. And, and that, this is exacerbated both by kind of this whole history of philosophy in which we've gone from being what's called a modern culture to a postmodern or at least an ultra-modern culture. And that's philosophical speak, but a lot of us know. I mean, if you kind of think about marketing, you know, 100 years ago, uh, maybe not 100 years ago, let me, let, me, let me make it a little more realistic. 50 years ago, you'd have commercials saying nine out of 10 dentists prefer Crest, right? Because we were a culture that valued expertise. We were a culture that valued absolute scientific knowledge. There was this idea that we could know these things objectively out there and be able to process it. Uh, now everybody knows if you're selling toothpaste, you don't sell it with doctor, you know, dentists, you sell it with hot girls that will kiss you. And so it's, it, it, it kind of underscores that we've moved as a culture from an objective view to an, a subjective view. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when you add into that kind of the chaos of, you know, different news, the orbits of different news sources, the difference between the Fox News world and the CNN world, living in a world of information, of memes and Facebook posts and social media and all these little nuggets of information where look it up for some of us meant go to a book as a kid. Now it means go to Google. All of these things mean the the truth is and how to find truth is huge. The other one I'll say, uh, and these are kind of big categories and we can get into the specifics like you know, things like abortion, uh, 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 religious liberty, um, you know, the generational gap between boomers and, and Gen Z. Uh, the other one, though, is this question about what it means to be human. Uh, to me, uh, you think, well, what does it mean to be human? Everybody agrees on that. No, no, they don't. Um, the, the difference between Nazi ideology and, 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 and uh, others had to do with the question of identity. The differences right now in our culture between people on various sides of things like the LGBT movement is the question of identity. Not just whether a behavior is right or wrong, but what makes us who we are? What's the essential part of us we cannot change? And these are, these are issues that have dramatic impact on Christians, certainly on our kids, but I think increasingly we're seeing it in, corporate, in the corporate space as well, especially for Christians who believe that their faith is not just kind of this personal private thing, but this thing to be lived out in all of their life. Wow. So here I, I, uh, here we sit, we're being listened to by hundreds of business leaders who their head is down and they're trying to run their company. You said something very profound at the beginning, uh, which was CEOs work on their culture, right. for their organization, Somebody has to work on the larger culture called the world or the city or the county or the state or the country. But if nobody works on it, it just kind of goes to seed, does it not? It does, or it just gets influenced by people who believe different things uh, about what's true, about what's good, about what's right. People who uh, seek power over the common good, for example. And we've seen that throughout history. I mean, culture is not, not a static thing. You can't build it and leave it sit out there any more than you can just build a factory and expect that your corporate culture will be the same uh, from day one to when, you know, the paint's falling off the walls and no one's changing, you know, the, 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 the cakes in the urinals. I mean, you have to do all these little things because it's all part of the larger corporate culture that you have. And we all live in, in, in a very uh, kind of a variety of levels of cultural realities, right? Our, our family cultures, our church cultures, our corporate cultures, 
our community cultures, and then of course the larger realities of uh, what we might call Western culture, right? Which is very different today than it was uh, 20 years ago, much mm-hmm. less 50 years ago. Yeah. Some of these changes are good. Some of these changes are technological, but they're intentional. Like, right? I mean, there were ideas about the spread and the distribution of information that have changed the, what it means to live in Western culture. We just mm-hmm. live in a different reality. Yeah. So yeah, we should care about it because it impacts us. But it's also, too, Greg, I would add this, like, we have to love our neighbors, right? That's the greatest command is to love God. The second one is to love our neighbors as ourselves. If we love our neighbors, we have to love, the, we have to love them enough to care about the world that they live in, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. Um, and culture either, for example, uh, uh, takes care of the poor, the disenfranchised, the, the vulnerable, or it victimizes and exploits them. Yeah, And there are certainly individuals that do that, but then there are cultures that either notice them as human beings or don't notice them as human beings. So caring about culture is as tangible and practical as loving our neighbor. Hmm. I, uh, I watched a chilling video the other day. Um, the, the good news is I remember everything about it. The bad news is I don't remember what the organization was. So in any case, I think it was called Sing a Little Louder, and it was a train going down the tracks that uh, broke down in Germany during uh, the Hitler Auschwitz time. The train breaks down in front of a church where it's Sunday, and the pastor of the church gets everybody in the church congregation to just sing, 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 sing a little louder, and one little boy runs out and he sees the uh, captured Jewish people being taken to the gas chamber, basically. And his mother comes out and tries to stop him from interacting with the Jewish people that are on the train. And the preacher guy is basically saying, let's all just sing a little louder. Is that happening today? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and part of it is one of the ways that modern culture has deeply infected all of us. Um, it, it, because the way modern culture, and there's a number of philosophical reasons for this, but the, the way modern culture treats religion as something that's personal, but also private. In other words, if you're a Christian, then that's your imaginary relationship with God. It, it's a self-help thing for you. But when you say things uh, that have to do with religion or morality, you're not actually talking about the world. You're just talking about yourself. So uh, faith is personal and it's private. And many Christians, and by the way, that's a, that's a philosophical framework called secularism. Uh, a lot of times we hear secular, we think atheist, but that's not true. Secularism doesn't disprove God. It just dismisses God. It privatizes God. And that's been very, very powerful. So we have our church life, and then we have everything else. What happens on Sunday, and then what happens everything every other time. Now, maybe what happens Sunday helps us develop a sense of meaning and purpose. It gives us a hope for after death. And maybe it helps us be a little bit more moral than we would be otherwise. Uh, but listen, if Christianity is true, if God did create the world, then that changes everything. C.S. Lewis said it was the most important statement of all time, because if it's true, everything's different. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, but what happens is when you treat religion and faith as personal and private, 
then you know some some something like a, a dramatically awful horrific human rights abuse you can dismiss as not having to do with me and Jesus right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or a culture that uh, you know perpetually victimizes and exploits women like we had in corporate America I mean watch Mad Men right how we had in corporate America for so long like what well, you know this is how business is done and so mm-hmm. we, we actually don't bring our faith to bear but here's what we've seen Greg is that some of the most unbelievable uh, people who have made the biggest difference in history have been Christians who believe that their faith actually revealed truth about the real world and meant that they had to actually do something. Some of them, by the way, were doing it through business and how they reimagined workers' rights, how they reimagined productivity, how they reimagined what the problem was and therefore what the solution their company or their uh, corporation was going to offer to it. These are amazing stories, um, but it requires being countercultural, at least in how we think about our faith. Yeah, there are many stories. I wish I could remember them all right now, but, um, (laughs) Yeah. It's a great it's a great study all the Christian business leaders in the last 100 years who made a oh, it's huge, amazing. huge difference with their company JC Penney is an example you know a modern day person would be true at Kathy but there's many 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 others who have treated people with dignity and worth I think of um, I think it's Pitcairn Steel in Pittsburgh uh, that uh, really created the value of the person. Oh, that's an amazing story. I just right. heard that this year, Greg. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the thing in my role as president of the Colson center, I, I obviously have to meet some of these people. I say I have to meet like it's a bad thing. I'm stunned. I mean, I really am stunned uh, by the level that so many CEOs, CFOs, COOs, uh, entrepreneurial uh, kind of thinkers about the world, people that are just super creative and how serious they are about, you know, their faith. I, I'll tell you one story and I won't name this guy's name because he doesn't want me to, but um, he's, his, his, his business is def- really tied to the um, airline industry, which means it's not, it's not, you know, flying planes or anything like that, but it's, he, he's really struggling. Uh, his business has taken a big old hit. And he sent us a gift, and which was great. Uh, I didn't know how bad he was struggling, and I didn't ask him for it. He sent it, and I, he said, I want to talk to you about it. And I was like, sure. So I called him, and he said, you know, I was reading George Mueller. If you know the story of George Mueller, he was one of the guys who was responsible for founding orphanages all up and down uh, the colonies and was known for praying and known for faith. And he, he has a, a part in one of his books where he says, you know, I, I just talked to some friends who lost a lot and they gave a gift then. He said, why? And he said, because we don't deserve any of this. Um, and so this is a thanks offering to God for not taking it all. Oh, wow. And that's what this guy said to me. Wow. And I was like, what a perspective. that You talk about a Christian worldview. That's getting it right at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the world. This world belongs to God. Anything that I have is a gift from God. And that's how he lived with us. And I was just blown away because you know what? I, I, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to do this stuff for a living and I wouldn't have thought that way. You know, wow. I'm so amazed by these folks who are creative, innovative, and, and see it as a gift of God, as if God gifted them in order to gift to the world. You know, like they're a pass through, a conduit of God's blessing. And um, when, people, when, 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 when people, particularly business leaders, uh, understand the power of how they think and what they believe in their faith. And, and you know, maybe, maybe another thing we could say, Greg, is just how powerful 
it observably is right now when people who hold a different faith bring that faith to bear in the public square, right? So when people, for example, have uh, certain deeply held beliefs about sexuality, you know, progressive sexuality or something like that, you know, you can look at the gay rights movement over the last several decades and think to yourself, when did it really start to change things in the American experience? There were really two moments in time. One, when it got deeply embedded, those ideas got deeply embedded in academic professionals, when it hit education. But second, and you can mark it on the calendar, it's 2014 in the state of Indiana, when business leaders brought that faith to bear and pressure uh, on, at the time, Governor Pence uh, on a religious freedom thing um, that they saw in conflict with LGBT rights. In other words, when, when the corporations became active according to their faith, mm-hmm. it mobilized that movement at a whole new level. Yeah, there's huge power in the corporate huge. platform. Huge power. Oh, it, it, look, look go, go down the list. And, and when organizations like Human Rights Campaign or something feel, figure out how to leverage that power, mm-hmm. um, it, it is. And then you look and you say, well, throughout history, Christians have leveraged that sort of influence mm-hmm. and it's made an enormous difference. And now we see people of other faiths, uh, you know, uh, leverage that same influence as well. Yeah, yeah. There's an interesting story. Uh, I think it was up in Toronto, Canada, where people have been praying over uh, a, a terrible place, a house uh, that was just used for illicit sex and the neighbors couldn't stop it and the preachers couldn't stop it and the prayers couldn't stop it and it was going on and <laughs> this business came along and and made the place an offer and bought the place and they're not in business anymore. <laughs> there's more than one way to do things. Well, there's this old guy at my church in Tennessee who, who would look at something like that and go, hey man, it ain't rocket surgery. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's just... That just really kind of makes sense. And, and you know, I, I've got a, a story about that as well, uh, Greg, from two uh, friends that both own their own business. Uh, one's very entrepreneurial and, and kind of corporate real estate, uh, constantly acquiring portfolios, not even knowing all the land that he has. The other one being a corporate executive coach. And about two years ago, uh, my friend uh, who runs the real estate company found himself in having acquired a plot of land and he hadn't even really known about it, but it was across the street from the largest Planned Parenthood clinic in the Midwest. They called it the super Walmart of Planned Parenthood because of the volume of abortions that they did. He only found out about it, by the way, when everyone started calling him going, what are you going to do with this property? What are you going to do with this property? He's like, what property? He's like, you know, that property. And, you know, it was all part of this whole portfolio. And then a progressive uh, state legislator called him and said, uh, uh, hey, uh, you need to stop all those protests because this on this property w- was where Catholic groups and Protestant groups would go and pray, uh, you know, uh, for, for, for uh, you know, pray about unborn babies and so on and do some of their protests. And when a Democratic senator called him, he realized that they're calling because, you know, Planned Parenthood is a big donor in their pocket. And that's what happened. Well, look, I, I don't want to draw this out, but a long story short, um, local pregnancy resource center their lease was, had run out. Uh, they were looking for a new property. And my friend just kind of got this vision. He called this group and said, you're going to buy this and you're going to build it. And it's literally right across the street from the largest abortion clinic in uh, all of central, uh, you know, um, the Midwest. 
my other friend who's a consultant and kind of a Deloitte level sort of business consultant jumped in and helped them kind of brand it and architect it because this Planned Parenthood clinic looks like a prison. It looks like a camp, right? It's awful. There's no windows. And so when they designed this pregnancy resource center to go across the street, it was big and it's life and it's light and so on and so on. Well, here's what's happened since the COVID-19 Planned Parenthood has had to, uh, uh, narrow down its offering. So they've closed different centers and driven everybody into this main super Walmart, which apparently now is like a Sam's club. And so, and guess who's right across the street open. They have mm -hmm. girls that think they're going to Planned Parenthood turn, make the wrong turn because it's a more attractive building than the one across the street. Oh, that's great. And, and you know what? None of this would have happened unless God had equipped these two men, and I'm telling you, these are two brilliant guys. You might even know them if I said the name. They're brilliant, brilliant guys. They know what they're doing and they know it. And they're really smart about it. Mm. And they've been blessed and they're blessing the world. It's really amazing. Somebody has to have the money in order to pull those things off, right? I was talking and the vision. I mean, there's a level of creativity there, right? Totally. We think of artists as being kind of visual artists or writers. Entrepreneurs and business leaders are artists. They, they, they see something that's not there and they put it there. And that's a yeah. way that God created us. My daughter says I'm an idea artist. <laughs> <laughs> that's really good, man. That's, yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, we were talking with Dr. Scott Ray, who I know you know at, uh, at uh, Biola University the other day. And he kind of blew my mind where he said that, that Genesis passage that says, um, be fruitful and multiply. I always thought those two words went together, fruitful and multiply. And it has to do with the whole notion of uh, procreation. Mm -hmm. He says, wait, no, that's not how it is. Fruitful is a word that talks about production and making things happen and producing and creating and it really has economic underpinnings and it's not tied to multiply so if we restated the genesis passage you should create things do things produce things make things in culture oh and you should multiply but the first part yeah. creates things which creates profit which creates the uh money for people to do the story that you just told uh about the um alternative center across the street from planned parenthood so profit god loves it i, I think right. god loves it when his world is made better i mean if you look at that passage this is before uh you know there the, the before the fall before the curse and god tells them to fill the earth not just fill the garden so yeah. you get this really kind of strong impression there that what they're supposed to do is God's given them this, this beautiful, flourishing, fruitful place. And now they're supposed to take that as a model and spread it out over the face of the earth. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It makes a whole lot of sense why it's not good that man is alone. That's, <laughs> that's a really big job description, but, but it is, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. I was on, um, but I'll tell you how many Christians miss this, Greg, and why it's so important. I was, I was on a, um, uh, a call just recently with a, a denomination, a group of clergy, 60 or 70 clergy in a Zoom webinar. And we were talking about kind of the cultural and worldview implications of COVID-19 for the church and all that. And we were, they were talking about at this time, the number of medical professionals and so on that we see in depression, wanting to quit. It's, I mean, it's a hard time to be a doctor. Now, if you were in Harvey, uh, Hurricane Harvey four years ago would be a really hard time to be a first responder or a police officer in Ferguson, Missouri, or uh, a, uh, 
a school teacher in Columbine, um, at Columbine High School, or in, in other words, all of our jobs hit these times where it's just really awful to do these jobs. So yeah. there's not a bigger vision about what these jobs are about. And one of these pastors, you know, don't, don't, don't lose your mind here on this one, but one of these pastors says, wait a minute, work wasn't in the garden, work was after the fall. And I said, no, that is just not true. Oopsie. Work is an inherent part of our God-given dignity. It's who we are. Um, and when you can't work, and I, I think, Greg, we've seen this. I hate the use of this word non-essential that we're throwing around for workers. You know, no work is non-essential. And I know what they mean. It's a way of categorizing. I just think language matters. I think we need to kick that language to the curb. Yeah. Um, Work is essential to the human heart. Work is the way God made us. And when pastors could get that right and talk about work as worship, and by the way, Scott Ray does it as well as anybody I know. I've learned half of my examples from Scott on this. <laughs> uh, I probably have stolen them from him. But, um, but, but it, it's, it's going to be a whole lot easier for people to walk through those really difficult times in their occupational lives if they think the work that they do has meaning in the first place. Right. And conversely, people who are sitting at home doing nothing because they're out of a job don't feel intrinsic value, dignity, and worth, not because they've watched too much Jeopardy, but because they are not producing anything. They're not creating anything. They're not uh, 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 making anything better. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. That the, produce word's huge. I mean, look, the, the, the fundamental difference between markets a free market approach uh, to economic reality and a, a more socialistic approach to the economy. It, this, this is why worldview matters right here. Right. It goes all the way fundamentally to that question, what's a human being? Yes. Socialist economies fundamentally treat human beings as consumers, which means the biggest problem you can have is too many humans. So that's why we have population control in, in India, uh, in um, China, uh, we have the reduced birth rate around uh, the Western countries and so on, because the worst thing you can have in that system is too many eaters, essentially. Yeah. This is why, I mean, look, you take us to the extreme and you have uh, the Nazis taught using phrases like useless eaters, right, as their justification to eliminate people. Yeah. Uh, the, the fundamental difference is in, in a market system, we tend to see people as consumers, but also producers. Right. right? And, and so it's amazing this, if you limit your perspective of reality, how much damage it can ultimately do. Mm -hmm. But when you see humans as not just the problem, but part of the solution, that's dignity, that's hope, that, I mean, there's just so many things that come out of that. So if the culture is uh, suppressing dignity and value and worth, mm -hmm. uh, talk, talk to the, the CEO who's out there and says, well, I'm not trying to be, you know, cute, but I see people as units of production who get things done for me. Um, you know, if they join the Rotary Club and are parents in the Little League, mm. God bless them, but that's their own thing. I just want them to come to work and produce things. How would you reorient their thinking so they could see people differently? Well, it's not, it's not a biblical way of thinking. And I'll say, ultimately, it won't work as well as treating people. See, see when, we, when we say Christianity is true, what we mean is it's true with a capital T. I don't mean that I think it's true and somebody else doesn't. And so, therefore, it's true for me, but not for you. 
What I mean is Christianity literally describes the world as it actually is. It best describes the contours of reality. Therefore, if you get the human condition right, you're going to have better results because it's like, if you deny gravity, you might be convinced of it, but the results aren't going to be good for you, right? What we, you know, we started naming these people through history who, who started making these changes and living as Christians. That's one of the ways that they did it. They saw, you know, uh, a, a remarkable uptick in their productivity and in, in the health of their workers in the long term. One can talk about, you mentioned David Green when he adopted the Sabbath. You know, he first year he lost a million bucks. The next year he became more successful than Michael's who didn't honor the Sabbath. Why? I don't know. You know, why does Chick-fil-A who's closed on Sunday do so well? Why is it that many people would rather, you know, and, and, you know, uh, uh, why is Chick-fil-A's franchise model so different than McDonald's franchise model? They're just based on a different vision. McDonald's sells you hamburgers. Chick-fil-A invests in people. And it's actually built into the franchise model itself. It's, I, I used to study this, and I can't remember all the Well, I mean, I mean to, to be, to be – once you're accepted to become a Chick-fil-A operator, the amount of money that you have to spend, I think, is still less than $10,000. It's absolutely ridiculously right. low. Why? The only reason is what Truett wanted in the first place. He That's wanted right. people to have an opportunity to do this role. Yeah. And if you are a good person who has all the characteristics of a leader, but you don't have enough money, not having the money should not be a blockade. So that's right. why it's so that's not the and, and see what that is. It's an assumption that the most important thing this guy's bringing to the table is not his money. Right. It's his innovation. It's his dedication. It's his moral uh, fiber. It's yeah. all the other things that he's bringing. Yeah. And, and look, it doesn't always equal a better profit, right? But 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 it, you know, I, I really appreciate uh, what one of uh, one of our ministry friends calls intentional inefficiencies. Um, and it's even as running a nonprofit, like I do, it's helped me think through, yeah, here's an employee you know, on a purely productive level. I could save money by, you know, changing them. And sometimes you got to do it because you're stewarding somebody else's giving and like in my case, but there's, but there's, there are intentional inefficiencies that you do, uh, you know, because they're the right thing to do. And at the end of the day, there's a, I think a different math that gets entered in. There's a, another couple factors and it has to do with seeing, seeing the world beyond just the physical, beyond just profit motives. Exactly. Um, and, and, and the fact of the matter is Jesus was really clear, right? Um, uh, you know, however we treat other people is how we're treating him. Uh, Paul calls him the second Adam. So th there's this, close connection throughout the scripture and especially in Jesus's own words that he's a representative of humanity. If I say I love my neighbor, but I hate, you know, G Jesus talks about all of these inconsistencies. If I say I love Jesus, but I treat my employees like a means to an end, then I treat Jesus like a means to an end as yeah. opposed to an end themselves. Well, John, I think you've helped us a lot when you, um, <clears throat> boil some of these uh, presenting issues down to the lowest common denominator when you say it's about truth with a capital T. If a business leader doesn't believe the Bible is an accurate historical document, 
in which Jesus was named as the son of the creator God, then you might act differently Monday to Friday because uh, it's probably just my little system. I probably you know don't want to get in the way of the other guy who has a different religious system. I don't want to hurt his feelings. My thing might not be really true. It's just good for me. And then you make decisions that are poor. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. that, that, that's right. I mean, this is why your worldview matters. I mean, if you went up to most people on the street and said, what's your worldview? They look at you strangely. But if you start asking them questions like, you know, um, what's right and wrong and who makes the rules and what happens when you die? These, this framework that we have of our most basic beliefs become the grounding of our values. And from our values, we make decisions. And so that's why it's essential that we start by asking these big worldview questions and say, well, okay, what is true? And from those true, what are the values that I should have? And from those values, how then should I live, right? What happens for most of us is that we live in a culture where certain behaviors are just taken for granted as normal. And so we just do what everybody else does. And when we don't think about what we believe, our behavior then turns around and reshapes our values and our values turn around and reshape our uh, deep, deeply held beliefs. So in other words, many people live upside down and it's really easy to do that today. Um, so if you aren't intentional about your faith, about your worldview, you'll have a worldview. It'll just be more of a, one of my friends calls it a world, W-H-I-R-L-D-D, right? Like a worldview, yeah. like a big buffet mixing, you know, melting pot of, of we really weird beliefs. Um, and it'd be hard to be consistent and to honor God and to love our neighbor. Well, yeah, well, let's switch gears for a second. Um, I know you've spent a lot of time with young leaders, uh, in, in some of your former work, what would you say are maybe let's just do the top issue that a CEO should be concerned about if they have teenage kids at home and they might not know, such and such, what would it be that they should pay attention to? You know, I, so uh, my uh, good friend, Brett Kunkel, and I put a book out on this called A Practical Guide to Culture. And we talk about culture as water. And, uh, you know, you're in California. So I'll, I'll use this beach analogy. You know, if you get hit by a wave on the beach, you know it. But we've also, especially those of us, you know, that are uh, uh, not as used to the beach, we can find ourselves, you know, just kind of having fun swimming in the water. We look up and suddenly we're 30 yards down the beach and we don't know how we got there. It's happened to all of us. Right. And it didn't, it wasn't a wave. It was a undercurrent. And one of the things I would, I tell parents and grandparents all the time is that the waves you feel, you, you, you see, you, you know, they hit you. But undercurrents, you don't. These are, these are dramatic shifts in the landscape that oftentimes, by the way, cause the waves. So uh, I, I think what, what, what we often say is, is the most powerful part of our culture are not kind of the loud crashing waves. It's these unnoticed undercurrents that move us from you know, part A to part B, or point A to point B. So for example, we talked earlier about the need for truth. That's one of the reasons is because living in the information age means a whole lot has changed, right? Uh, Thomas Friedman wrote the book, The World, uh, the World is Flat. Remember that book? Uh-huh. In, in which he argued that the internet was making everything, you know, changing out, making, remaking the world, uh, uh, you know, fix, uh, flattening out the differences between the haves and the have-nots and developing nations and developed nations. He wrote that book in 2006. 
his next book, by the way, it, it, the first chapter is, is, is entitled, What Happened in 2007? You know what happened in 2007 was the iPhone, the Android, Skype, Twitter, Moore's Law went from two years to 18 months. I mean, 2007 is like the year of the printing press and the, te- in, in the information age. And what he, his point is, is like, look, I wrote about the world is flat the year before was the most important year in this whole computer revolution. Our kids have never known a different world uh, than that. We're, we're immigrants to iPhones, right? They're natives. We're immigrants to glowing rectangle devices everywhere. They're natives. Now, I know we know that. And so we, we think that the big change is I got to get, you know, proficient on Zoom or something like that. Well, yeah, but a, a world in which um, a, a world of the information age is a world where kids have access to ideas at an unprecedented rate. Mm-hmm. And they have access to these ideas before they've developed discernment about these ideas. Yeah. Does that make sense? I mean, and this oh, is totally, really, totally. It's really important. I mean, look, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I never met a Buddhist. Our kids have read Buddhist ideas or have seen them in movies, television shows or whatever from day one. We live in a, a, we're just bombarded with these ideas and doing it at a time before they have an, a, a really a developed sense of discernment. Yeah. So that's a big one. Let's, I, I, can we pick on an issue for a second and at the yeah, risk sure. of all, uh, getting all kinds of hate mail, but <laughs> um, to keep it practical. So um, I have some friends, we all have friends that this has happened to where the family picture comes out and the uh, girls dresses are very different than they were 50 years ago. And oh. it, it's now okay to show certain parts of a woman's body on a, on a, on a on a normal photography shot than it was 50 years ago. I was at the beach the other day, yes, when it opened legitimately in California. <laughs> and there were probably, I don't know, 30, 40% of the women who their their beachwear left nothing to the imagination. Mm-hmm. So how did that happen from 75 years ago when women wore dresses to the beach? How would oh, okay. how did that happen? Well, that's another that's another trend that we talk about in the book, uh, and and that trend has a lot more to do with our uh, loss of un, our loss of identity. Huh. Uh, in fact, I think one of the the most uh, if, if you kind of think about all the issues we have from fashion to sex trafficking, uh-huh. from um, from what it means to be an educated person to how to deal with poverty, at the root of answering all these questions requires that we know what it means to be human there's a profound uh truth in the psalms where david is writing about why we ought to praise god and he 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 compares god to the idols it's in psalm 135 and you should check it out but somewhere around verse 15 he goes the idols are deaf and they're dumb they can't speak they can't hear they're not alive and then he says in verse 18 those who make them will be like them and so will all who trust in them Here's the theological thought. We're made in the image of God. If we want to know who we are, we don't start by looking at each other. We have to start by looking at God. The counterpoint is, what if we become a culture that no longer looks at God? Then we become a culture that no longer knows what it means to be human. And when we don't know what it means to be human anymore, we have to make up things that make us feel good about ourselves or that give us a sense of stable identity. 
And look, we're the sexual revolution has been the, the dominating force that has come in as the replacement theology, so to speak, for human value, that our human value is based in our sexual orientation or our sexual identity. But it's created a really difficult thing. I mean, Greg, it was just three years ago when the Me Too movement started, right? The hashtag Me Too movement. Right. Which has uncovered uh, in a very difficult, painful, and not a perfect way, uh, really bad things that have happened to women in various parts of society. It was started, of course, uh, around exposing Harvey Weinstein, uh, which, of course, everyone knew about in Hollywood for decades. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if you remember this. This is the bizarre thing. So Harvey Weinstein gets thrown under the bus, rightfully so, by the way. I mean, no defense of him whatsoever. But three weeks before that, the whole world was remembering with fondness and even celebration Hugh Hefner, who had passed away. Is there a greater exploiter of women's bodies in our lifetime than Hugh Hefner? Probably not. So this is where all this leads. It's, it's like we untethered human dignity from God and we tethered it to midair. You know? And so suddenly Hugh Hefner is a good guy, but Harvey Weinstein is a bad guy. And who makes that decision? And how are you supposed to keep up with it? And you see what I mean? It's, it's just impossible to do it, but it, it, it happens because of this. Um, so, so for example, we're not supposed to exploit women's bodies. And yet that's where the fashion trend for swimwear goes. How do you, yeah. how do you hold that together? Sex so, trafficking is the worst crime on the planet. Everyone agrees to that. You shouldn't sexualize young girls. The swimwear for young girls is worse than the swimwear for grown women. Huh. You, right. So it, it's just left this part of confusion where a culture lands if you don't have solid ground of truth with a capital T. Mention your book again, because there's some <laughs> people listening who should buy it. The one you did with Brent. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's called and, a practical guide to culture. And we really wrote it because we felt like the generation gaps between Gen Z and, uh, and millennials and then from boomers was dramatic. Uh, and you know, what's interesting, Greg, too, is one of the groups uh, of people that have so resonated with that book, we, and we, I've spoken to, a, in fact, last year I spoke to a thousand grandparents, grandparents. I'm like, I'm not a grandparent. Why am I speaking to her? But I think grandparents really feel that generation gap between them and their grandkids. Yeah. And as I often say, it's three things, right? It, it's, it's, it's sex, it's technology, and it's Trump. Those three things are huge generation gaps. Um, and so uh, grandparents struggle to know really what it is and how to communicate it. And the book has been helpful for that group, which we're really grateful for. Yeah, I strangely uh, have some gray hair these days. And I was at the grandparenting seminar at EV Free. Oh, yeah. Uh, Fullerton. And Josh McDowell got up and I, I talked to him a little bit before. And he said, you know, you're not going to believe what I'm going to say kind of thing. And I was like, uh, I. I, I know you're going to say something pretty big and that's how Josh rolls. Yeah, and that's how he does it. Basically said to 2000 grandparents gathered in EV free Fullerton, you need to pay attention to what your grandchildren are doing with their phone while they're at Grammy and Grampy's house for a sleepover because in about three seconds, they can be surfing pornography while they're having a sleepover at your house and you don't know it. So, uh, I love what you said about Psalm 135, the whole identity thing, the idols piece. 
that really reframes the discussion for the busy CEO who's uh, maybe missing the point uh, of the of the discussion. So, well, the fun thing about talking about things with you is I could talk for another three hours, but we're kind of out of time and we'll have to either do this again or um, do it in real time when we're allowed to actually uh, see each other again. But I'm so grateful that you've taken time to be with us here, uh, even though we're in different parts of the country. But I'm really grateful. If you want to connect with John, uh, you can find him on Twitter at JB Stone Street and on the web at breakpoint.org. John Stone Street, president of the Colson Center, thank you so much for spending time with us at Convene. I'm very grateful. Hey, Greg, I love what you guys are doing at Convene. I love the vision of an integrated life between church and work and family and that we're all living this for the Lordship of Christ that you guys champion in both uh, really solid theological as well as really practical ways. So Godspeed to you guys. Love what you do. Thanks, John.